Ectoplasm, Advent Calendar Day 9, Big Finishes Sapphire and Steel. Now, I'm specifically talking about the Big Finish audio plays rather than the original series of, uh, well, six adventures starring David McCallum and Joanna Lumley. The thing about the Big Finish audio plays is that uh, they are every bit as well acted. Um, you have uh, Susanna Harker playing Sapphire. Susanna Harker has been in a number of things, including... Um, House of Cards as Matty Storen, and also she was in Ultraviolet, Channel 4 series about vampire hunters, only lasted for six episodes, and had a very young Jack Davenport and Idris Elba in it, amongst other people. Um, but she is absolutely fantastic. And equally great is David Warner, the late David Warner, as Steele. They've both really captured the essence of the characters. Now, this may be something I actually make into a full episode. I went through a period of obsessing over Sapphire and Steel. I wrote a role-playing game around it called Transuranic World. It was a Powered by the Apocalypse. Um, it was only ever in a very, very rough beta. Well, an alpha, I suppose. I mean, it was like sort of... Uh, it was pretty rough and ready. I was quite pleased about some of the ideas in there. And I know I don't think I'm actually the first person to have written a Sapphire and Steel role-playing game, but the only other one I saw was like a sort of a 90s effort, which was um, written in 90s style. So it was very much of a we want to do a uh, uh, we want to do this weird sci-fi, but the only tools we have to do it with are basically D and D or something that looks a lot like D and D. When I thought about Transuranic World. What I wanted to do was, um, the characters are, are one thing. I mean, you can take Steel, for example. Steel is um, incredibly strong. He has um, you know, those supernatural powers. They're all telepathic. But the agents or the operatives and technicians, when we're talking about gold and silver and others, they are, are defined as much by their powers as they are by the thing that they lack. Steel lacks humanity. He lacks the ability to interact with humans on any way at all, and so he will tend to be a blunt instrument. Um, and I thought that was interesting for Powered by the Apocalypse, because, of course, you have a set of core um, moves that you can make. What if Steel doesn't have any kind of a move that involves read a person or read a sitch? Well, maybe he can read a sitch, but he can't read a person. Um, that becomes a special playbook move. And you could underline the, the basic um, weaknesses of each agent by the things that you deny them out of the core moves. And I'm specifically talking about denying them rather than making it harder for them to do things, which is a sort of a soft denial, because you're, you're telling the players, you're just not very good at this. There's a big difference between telling the players, your character is bad at this, versus telling them there is absolutely no way that this character can attempt this and expect any kind of useful outcome. So Steele could try to relate to somebody, try to seem sympathetic. He would always, always fail. And that's a, a kind of an interesting nuance of Power by the Apocalypse, which um, I'm not sure how popular it is. I remember having an argument with Josh Fox about it at some point. Um, and... I think it's worth exploring. So maybe someday I'll pick that up and maybe someday I'll do a full episode. 
But anyway, back to the Big Finish one. So I obsessed over um, the whole series and, you know, the canon, the original TV series, and then the Big Finish reinterpretation. And it is a reinterpretation. That's the interesting thing. If you watch the series and then you listen to the audiobooks, you realise that there are some slightly different assumptions about how the universe works. It is slightly different in terms of who the enemy is and how the enemy operates. Specifically, what time is and what time does. Whether time is just a thing in which things exist outside of it and want to get into the corridor of time. And this is very much the thing that, that David McCallum Steele lays out in the very first episode, I think. Versus time being something that is sentient and jealous and makes bargains and tricks people. So the question is, you know, who is the antagonist? Now, there's more than one kind of antagonist as well. If um, if you recall the, uh, you know, the the faceless man in the photographs of Adventure 4 in the TV series. There are equivalents of that in the audio plays, um, which are basically monsters, free agents, who are messing around with time and uh, feeding off lost years and doing all sorts of other things too. I mean, it's, I mean to some extent, I mean, Stephen, it was Stephen Moffat who wrote The Weeping Angels first into the Doctor Who timeline. This whole idea about them... Uh, sending people back in time and then feasting off the lost years, um, being you know temporal vampires. So this idea of um, you know eating lost years and the other motivations that the um, the temporal monsters get out of putting humans in a very particular situation, that was really interesting. But as I said, there's one of the things that really comes out of the audio plays which is barely hinted at in the um in the tv series are the concepts of transuranic beings and the transuranics that they're, they're basically a, they appear to be an enemy agency now the only thing that's said about them in the tv series is an adventure six and it suggests they they answer to a higher power and they come from an earlier time in the timeline which is interesting in itself um the motivations of transuranics are slightly different in the um, in the audio plays. I want to say they're kind of it's kind of a Camarilla versus Sabat relationship, but that's probably completely wrong. Particularly because, as inhuman as vampires are, it still humanizes the agents. You've got to remember that these agents are not actually humans; they're elements, and they lack humanity itself as much as they know how to manipulate humanity and to analyze it they're not human and some of them can't they can't appreciate things in the same way um it's worth noting that uh, silver appreciates human gadgets and um sapphire of course is sensitive to human emotion and um concepts but even sapphire doesn't really care she doesn't really have a moral, uh, any sort of moral sense about uh, the plight of the people, the plight of the people that they interact with. She's, um, you know, it's simply it's very matter of fact for her, just like Steel. They're not so different after all. So Sapphire and Steel was originally created by Peter J. Hammond. 
but the Big Finish audio plays were spearheaded by Nigel Fares. So there's already a difference in creative vision and vision for the canon. And my guess is that Nigel Fares and um, whoever he collaborated with, uh, they they had a, a slightly different interpretation of the canon. And in some cases they expand it, but in some cases they kind of contradict it. Um, made a little notes about this and uh, there's too much to go into at the moment um, but one of the things that does happen is that um, the transformation of Saffron Steel into um, David Warner and Susanna Harker's versions is canonical um, in that I mean, it, it suggests that they, they meet together and they recognise each other but they are different people they have the, very much the same mannerisms, but a slightly different presentation. The idea that they have been some, somehow regenerated in a Doctor Who sense, um, which would make sense. And I, I think that Nigel Fares would have had to deal with a very obvious cliffhanger at the end of the TV series. And then throughout the series, they even change actors again very briefly. And that's interesting. And that's, that's kind of, that happens when... Um, David Warner and Susanna Harker's versions get trapped somewhere and uh, whatever agency is responsible for the elements recreates Sapphire and Steel complete with a slightly different um, uh, introductory theme tune and um, alternative accents I think they're both Australian I think um, it's pretty interesting so yeah the, there are a number of different interesting things that are um, uh, that come out of the audio plays. Uh, there is the the implied conflict with the transuranic beings, uh, much more about the motivation of the different threats who are being faced. But there's no suggestion about who the higher authority is, who the agency is, why the agents are actually there, and why they're turning up. The original actor who played Silver is actually still in the audio plays, and I, and I understand that uh, McCallum and Lumley were invited but they they couldn't do it mark gattis is in it as well he plays gold who's another technician um playing opposite silver and he's really good now the one last thing i want to say about sort of making a role-playing game about this i talked about powered by the apocalypse and the way the character structure would work the thing about powered by the apocalypse is a lot of them started out with follow the characters around. You have a sandbox and characters are free to go wherever you like. This is not possible in Sapphire and Steel. You have um, essentially a closed room scenario in all cases. In a lot of cases, and certainly examples in the um, in the big finish place, uh, the, the, it's impossible for the characters to get outside the environment owing to temporal paradoxes or monsters who want to keep everyone isolated inside because then they can feed on them. And that's an interesting challenge for a role-playing game to try to say, well, I've set these boundaries and I want to give the characters the freedom to wander around and look at things, but um, I also want to establish that there is no outside to go to. There's also no outside authority to appeal to. Thinking about going forward, um, I do think it'd be interesting to give the. Uh, I do think it would be interesting to give this another go, but I'm thinking something that might be much more suitable would be something like 
Cthulhu Dark or an iteration of Cthulhu Dark, simply because of the way that the, the focus on investigation and the way the flow of points goes with that. So I'm going to have a. I'm, I'm probably going to revisit it now that I've thought about it. Sadly, you can't get the big finish place anymore officially. I don't know what happened. I assume they lost the license. Um, I think it's a great shame that um, we've lost out because they're good. So if you can track them down, I got all mine um, back in the day, uh, secondhand on eBay, wherever I could get them for a decent price. And so I made up my collection and um, they're worth listening to. Uh, okay, that's the end of it for that episode. Uh, I guess I'll open the next portion of the advent calendar. Oh, it's um, it's a tiny patch of space-time, and some people. There's a little window in there somewhere, floating in the void. And two people just waving at me. I think that'll look great in the library. All right. Speak to you later. Bye-bye. Fixoplasm Podcast. Words by Ralph Lovegrove. Music by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at fixoplasm.net. Music.